to Crossing Phase. This is the first podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. Your co-hosts are me, Matt Hawkins, a once policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention, and my friend John Pinna, former director of Government and International Relations of the American Islamic Congress. It's a joint project between Roll Top Productions, that's my thing, and Muslims for Muslims, that's John's thing. Joining me once again from upstate New York, John Pinna. Welcome back, and uh, shortly... We'll introduce our guest. How are you doing there, sir? I'm good. I'm gl- I'm just happy you're talking to me. I know. <laughs> I know. I was out of pocket from John for a couple days. He thought I wasn't so I was talking ta- to him. I, I heard he had hay fever, and so I, I, I talked to my <laughs> friend in, from Louisiana, and I said, well, yeah, I was trying to get a hold of my friend. I was a little worried about him, but he says he has hay fever, so I guess he's recovering. And my New Orleans <laughs> buddy goes, that's the Southern way of saying he doesn't want to talk to you for a couple of days. So he's like, hay fever is just the... It's it's to put somebody off. I go. I don't know. I think we're, I think we're friends enough to to know when when we can say, oh, I just need a few days. But he was trying to convince me. He says it's a nice way of telling somebody they don't really don't want to talk to him in well, the south. Uh, if that's a thing in the south, I've not heard of it before. But it's a clever it's a clever idea. I just was. Uh, okay. The older I get, the more of a bubble boy I am. And I spent a couple of, an afternoon on my grandfather's farm cutting his uh cutting his farm on a tractor and then for days after i was just kind of a mess so i'm i'll be muting my microphone from time to time just to blow my nose so i apologize to such you a and, wholesome and upbr- upbringing such a wholesome <laughs> life you know, living i'm around such a suburban laws, city guy the, the idea of me on a tractor is is comical if <laughs> for this that well, know me. <laughs> the last conversation we had tractor chainsaw hay fever gymnastics it's good for me it's good for me not not a lot of it, but just enough. Apparently, it wasn't good for me last week, but I'm 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 on the mend, so I appreciate that. Sorry, sorry for my delayed text and phone calls. It's okay. It's all right. Look, you know, I one, um one thing I do want to say right now, John. Uh, our last our previous episode that we recorded is a headline episode. Uh, I I, I want to say how grateful I am for you as a co-host because uh, I think I texted you before the show uh, and may have uh, hinted at this. I just wasn't feeling it that day. Uh, and and sometimes you just need a co-host to be more passionate and, and alive and interested in talking about the stuff we need to talk about. Uh, so uh, And you, you handled that uh, last time, and I thought it was a pretty good show. And uh, I'm grateful for, for the energy and the passion you bring, uh, even when I'm not uh, completely into it. So thank you for that. Well, for our listeners, I just Venmoed him $50 to say that. So... <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I know. I, I, I know. I mean, you know me. I'm not, I have no shortage of things that I'm passionate about. But uh, you know, we're we carry each other. So you know, we've been friends and colleagues now for a long time. So uh, it was it was a pleasure to, to for us to start off where we did and end up where you were motivated for the rest of the day to the point where you didn't want to talk to me a week <laughs> later because you had hay fever. So all right. Well, with that, I think uh, we should get uh, get an introduction from you about our special guest today. To have uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful speaker. Uh, um, I'm going to say friend and colleague, although I'm going to watch uh, her Twitter feed to say, may see if that says absolutely not. Um, Dr. Joanne Myers or Dr. Jam, as she's affectionately uh, called by her students and, and friends, uh, is a uh, I would say a longtime personal friend now, 10 years, professor of political science uh, at uh, Marist College, uh, as director of, the, of public administration. She's a board 
remember at the Eleanor Roosevelt Center. Uh, we also share uh, our our common law of the environment. She is uh, an important member at the Clearwater, which I was a bosun. I was a ship's carpenter in the Clearwater years and years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, I think they're still uh, trying to replace the parts that I put on there, which may or may not have fit appropriately. Um, and uh, she is uh, an accomplished uh, writer. Uh, she's authored three books now. Four, right? I think the, I four think, books? I think four. Four books now. One of which okay, we'll talk so, about today. One we're going to talk about today. A lot of her books are about uh, the sexuality, uh, lesbian uh, liberation movements, advocacy, a historical dictionary of uh, lesbian gay liberation movements. Uh, and the book, one of the books we're going to talk about today, which is uh, her most recent, is about citizenship, uh, the good citizen, uh, which uh, markers of privilege in America. And we are going to kind of bump back and forth into um, uh, the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and 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 good citizen. Her book on good citizenship, but she's an expert in uh, domestic violence, jurisprudence, political theory. She knows uh, is a good resource for me all the time. We've sat and uh, I've sat in our class and and taught a few things uh, with her uh, advice and guidance uh, to get us started off. Dr. Jam, if you could give us a little bit of background about who you are, um, how you came to be uh, who, uh, at Marist College, and a little bit about your department, what you do there. Okay. Um, I'm sure you don't want to know that in fifth grade, I thought I was going to be the first woman president. Well, there's still um, time. There's still time. You can get yeah, elected in your 80s I'm now. At this point. I'm, be- <laughs> I'm better off as a, as a staff person. Um, my... my interest has always been in in that relationship of of citizen and non-citizen and the state you know how do how do they relate um, and I'll say that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was one of my first uh, heroes or sheroes as I like to refer to her as um, and then as I you know became more educated as I uh, I was a government philosophy double major uh, my undergrad degree, I was introduced to Hannah Arendt and Emma Goldman, and they be also became my, my sheroes. And when I was in grad school, um, while I studied uh, basically political communication and urban environmental studies, I uh, was introduced to the Clearwater and to Pete Seeger. And so, she, so he became one of my heroes. Um, and at the, on the Clearwater, I was actually a cook for a couple of seasons. And then I worked my way up to president of the board. And now I'm just a member. I own a piece of the piece of the boat. Um, uh, I, during this, this time, I also uh, worked uh, in New York City for Mayor Koch. I worked in the Department of Sanitation in the Office of Resource Recovery and Waste Disposal Planning. Um, let me say that that work was done 40 years ago. I'm now on the board of our county resource recovery agency, and we are doing the same type of work right now. One of our problems is that we, we need to uh, reduce our waste that, that you and I make. Uh, back in, in the early 80s, uh, every man, woman, child, and dog in New York City made about seven pounds of garbage a day. Uh, we have lowered that a little 
But we really need to start to move to zero waste because we have no way, nowhere to put this garbage. Basically, you know, the garbage that you and I make. And that's a problem that I'm dealing with today, you know, as a board member of uh, the uh, Ulster County Resource Recovery Agency. Mm-hmm. Of course, in uh, New York City at that point was dealing with 22,000 tons of municipal solid waste a day. Goodness We're gracious. not dealing with that much. Yeah, that was a lot of garbage. And at that point, most of the garbage ended up in, at fresh kills, which became the highest point on the eastern seaboard before wow. it was closed. But anyway, that's garbage. And I um, well, uh, it's it's always it always I just want to make sure and she's talking the real deal that as New Yorkers, when someone says they're in sanitation, that usually means organized crime. So <laughs> we just was, want to make sure that, that everyone knows that she is actually that, that Dr. Dr. Joy Myers is actually working for the city. I actually yeah. met Mayor Koch at one point uh, with my grandfather back in the day when we were in Arthur Avenue coming out yeah. of, uh, I don't know, one of the restaurants there. And we, we sh- I shook his hand once. So that's my only claim to fame with Mayor Koch. Yeah. But, now, uh, Mayor Koch was probably one of the smartest men next to Mario Cuomo that I've ever met. Oh, and Jerry White. I would right. put Jerry in that, that category. Uh, Koch and, and Cuomo had completely different managerial styles. Uh, Koch would say, I'm, I'm going, my first memo that I had to write for him, he was going up to um, Co-op City up in the Bronx, which at that point had somewhere just north of 15,000 apartments. And he said, I'm doing a town hall tomorrow night. Uh, give me a two-page memo on what are the issues I might be facing. <laughs> Cuomo, who I, after I worked in sanitation, I went to New York State and I worked in the uh, Division of Housing Community Renewal during rent administration uh, transition. The the state took over uh, rent control and rent stabilization from the city. I implemented that for for them. And then when that was done, um, I went over to uh, Cuomo's staff and I did the uh, Fort Drum expansion. Fort Drum at that point was just a National Guard base up in uh, Watertown, New York. And the 10th Mountain Light Division was looking for a new place to, to call home. And so they, it was between someplace in Alaska and, some, and upstate New York. And so Cuomo t- asked myself and, and a colleague to basically map out what would it be if 10,600 uh, or 400 troops uh, and their uh, dependents moved into an area that had seen no growth since 1870. Mm. And what wow. the impact was. So there was a housing, there was a, uh, uh, education, there were criminal justice impacts, there was public health in, impact. So we, mm. we gave Cuomo on uh, the morning of January 2nd and 9 o'clock a, me- uh, a memo that was over a hundred pages long that had appendices A through K in it. And this is Cuomo. Uh, The next day we meet with him to see what his decision is going to be. And he goes, do you know that there was a a typo in appendices D? (laughs) You know, like. That's the focus. One one to two pages on what, you know, all the different things he wanted. He read everything. Over everything. Usually, um, when there's a typo in something, uh, or 
I'm making a presentation, I usually say, well, well that's my Turkish flaw. And people yeah. ask, what, what is the Turkish flaw? And I always say, well, in, in Istanbul or Turkey. And, and I know that there's, there's some, some, uh, some drama and some controversy with is Turkey right now on a lot of different fronts, but, uh, one is with the Hagia Sophia. But I always say, well, that's my Turkish flaw. And people, what is that? So, well, tur- Turkey, they make them the most beautiful carpets in the world. And, uh, although Afghanistan probably makes the number one, we'll, we'll do a shout out to them. <laughs> they make the second most wonderful carpets in the world. And, uh, their patterns are tessellations, repeating patterns. Uh, and they, the, the carpets are perfect once they're, once they're done, once they're completed. And then a, a little lady sews in a flaw. And it's a purposeful flaw because there's no such thing as perfection. Only, only God, only Allah is, perf- is perfect. So uh, a purposeful flaw is a Turkish flaw. And, and so I always use that when the lighting goes out or the, usually when I'm doing a presentation and the PowerPoint isn't up or there's lighting issues and so forth. Uh, I said, well, that's the Turkish flaw for the day. But uh, it sounds like, sounds like he was quite analytical. And, and I think one of the key parts of, of you describing who you are and where you come from is that you're not just an academic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we're going to get a little bit, I think, into the academics yeah. right now, but you are a practitioner. Can I, can I jump on that for a second? Yeah. And that's because um, when I was finishing up my, my degree, my, my doctorate, I realized that if I really wanted to understand how you, you get to a true liberal democracy where you have equality for all, you have to start to implement. You have to learn how the process works so that you can then change the process and make it better. So that's why I spent years working. You know, I worked uh, in Mesa County as the bike safety lady for a second. Okay. The bike safety lady. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I, I yell at uh, people who are uh, over the age of 12 who are riding their bicycles on the sidewalk. Yeah. I'm with, I'm anyway, with you on that. <laughs> but, and then, you know, then I went to this, you know, New York City, then I went to New York State. Um, and then in um, after Fort Drum was up and running hmm. as the home to the 10th Mountain Light Division. Um, I basically turned to the governor and said, well, now I, now I want to go back and I want to go teach now. Mm-hmm. Now, now I've le- learned all of this. I've implemented policy. I've, I've seen how, if I want this concept of equality, how, for instance, uh, garbage shouldn't be politicalized. You know, if you want your neighborhood to be, to move up and you want everybody to be equal, you make sure that they have the equal services. Mm-hmm. Right. So and so forth. So then I he said, oh, do you have a job? I said, no, no, I'm not yet, but I will. And I ended up at Marist because um, Marist actually, actually, I interviewed at Marist in the Yeshiva Hmm. University. Basically, um, and I actually had to say to the uh, political science department at the Yeshiva that they they didn't know what what type of uh, uh, position they wanted to offer, and you know, they were infighting between huh. the, the uh, all the members. And I basically said, until you decide this, you, you can't really hire anyone. Now, so I said, th- you have to have that conversation. So I got up and I left hmm. um, Marist. Um, and let me uh, say that my background is um, both my parents uh, were Jewish. Um, 
Um, it turns out that my uh, grandfather was actually a cantor uh, really? in his show. Um, and as I used to laugh and, and tell uh, Jerry White when he would talk opera to me, I could appreciate opera, but the only way I could carry a tune is if it was on a platter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so who knew? Um, Where's your family from? Uh, or, or, or uh, so my... Um, my father's family, um, my uh, Papa Sam, uh, he's been gone for 50 years now, I just received notice. He actually was put on a uh, boat out of Germany, but he was Latvian, uh, yeah. out of Germany with his, when he was five with his, with his seven-year-old uh, brother to come to the new world to, to meet up with his older brother, who was already in Boston, who was a whopping 10. Hmm. And so they ended up in New York City and they had to work there, you know, learn the language and, and at five and seven. And let, trust me, I don't let my grandson cross the street, you know, who's five. Imagine sticking your, you know, five or seven-year-old onto a, a ship go across the ocean to and end up in a completely different city. Wow. Well, when my... When my- my grandfather and I would travel to Italy. We would fly to uh, Lugano, Switzerland, and then drive all the way down. And we had family in Sicily and family in uh, uh, in Naples. And uh, this is, you know, I did that for almost 10 years when I was very, very young. And I think the first time I went with Pop was maybe I was 10, 10 years old. And uh, he, I would take the ferry. Uh, we'd go into, into Sicily. And I take the ferry from uh, Shaka, which faces Tunisia south. Uh, it's a 22-hour ferry. And he would put me on it, and he'd say, alone. And he'd say, look, go go to, you know, you talk to whoever you want. It's a boat. You're not going to fall off. And then he'd say, if you do fall off, he'd go like this with his hands, do a little circle, and go, it's the Mediterranean. It's very small. You're just going to float to a country. It's okay. <laughs> you know, so it's a very different world these days, I think. Um, I was just talking with my friend about kids playing in the street. They said, well, you can't do that anymore. So I, I, I think that uh, that experience and that mindset comes out of a generation where um, the world was a completely different place. Um, yeah. And we had a necessity you did stuff. But uh, um, but I think my grandfather is just really funny. He goes, it's the Mediterranean. It's very small. You just go float to a country. We think, of, boat, we think about risks fine. very differently. Now, don't we? <laughs> I never, I never even thought about it. I, I was always walking around the boat, looking around. Like, I, I remember leaning over the side one time and, it, and it was, the boat was rocking and I almost fell over and I go, oh, I, I would have just floated to a country. Yeah. So <laughs> it was really funny. That was my mindset because that's what he told me. So, um, but th- th- what year was that? Was that a uh, pre-World War II? Yeah, or? So, so this was, yeah, somewhere pre-World War uh, I. Oh, pre-World War I. Sam, yeah. Wow. And my mother's parents um, actually, uh, my grandmother came from Kiev in the uh, late 19-teens, uh, 20s. Um, and actually, she remembered what her, her show looked like. And um, I took a group of students uh, to uh, 
Ukraine and to Kiev and walking around, I found the shawl and went in. It was still an operating shawl. And it was the one that she had, you know, grown up in until the age of like eight or nine when they um, came to the United States. That's pretty profound considering the history of that region and all the business happening there with that was very Fiddler on the Roof-esque. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) so I reference that a lot in this this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) John, John's so, only John John's only reference point for Jewish culture is Fiddler on the Roof. Well, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, but I <laughs> I do use it quite a bit. I just, I just it surprises me how many people have not seen the movie. Number one, number two, is after you watch the movie, there's no question of the history of the people. It mm-hmm. it's because you can take you can take change the names of the family and change the location. To it doesn't matter Germany it doesn't matter Italy Russia it doesn't matter uh, neighborhoods in New York uh, neighborhoods in in the United States and you can see it, it, the the history and and the tragedy of of the the the, the Jewish experience uh, and uh, and a lot of people just don't haven't seen it and I think it's a kind of a one stop shop to be honest with you, um, uh, but but we've been socialized with it as a new as New Yorkers and certainly I've been growing up in a Jewish community, you know the bits and bobs. I was just speaking with a friend of mine about how I my I was at my first seder, and it was with the Salans, which were uh, he was a senator, um, a state senator, and I remember being sitting right next to the mother who had the serial number on the arm mm-hmm. and uh, was explaining to me all this stuff. And I was really young uh, and she was explaining to me like why all this is so important. And, uh, and she was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, and it, it's, you know, like it's, I, I, you know, I'm not going to commit a hate crime paralleling the fiddler on the roof to the Holocaust, mm-hmm. but there has been a series of Holocausts, uh, within the Jewish community and, and where you had had to escape persecution uh, as is a lot of populations, but in, in, in this particular, uh, the Jewish experience. And I think that the um, filler on the roof ca- kind of captures it very well, the changing environment during the Russian revolution and yeah. the families losing its tradition and culture because of intermarriage. And then on top of that, which is a, cultural type of genocide and then and then uh they're losing their homes because they're driven away by uh by communists Mm -hmm. uh and uh and so i think that 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 experience is 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 quite profound um profoundly uh, depicted in the movie but we're we're dealing with it now with the russian community or russian the the jewish community in america where uh, the community is struggling to maintain its identity as it becomes more diffuse uh, through intermarriage and, and cultural uh, in, infringements. And I think we all are uh, more or less. I always make that statement about me. I go, look, I'm four generations out of our country. I'm what happens when you are a refugee four generations from where you come from. It doesn't mean that I'm not Muslim or don't have that culture or don't have those things, but it means that I, uh, it's difficult to hang on to who you are and what you're about. Uh, I'm lucky to have known my great grandfather and my grandfather very well. Uh, uh, but a lot of people, they don't have those connect that connectivity to the old world. 
So, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, so, appreciate so I you sharing actually, that experience. Yeah, so we actually, if you think about it, uh, we are pretty multicultural ourselves. I mean, think about just our food. You know, if it was Tuesday, it's Taco Tuesday. Right. Um, you guys were eating in a, in a Jewish uh, deli, right? Mm-hmm. And so Jewish delis, you know, are, uh, are different um, than a uh, Jewish dairy uh, restaurant. Right. Right. The kosher, you know, ness of, of the food. Well, I appreciate, I really appreciate that, uh, that background, Dr. Myers, and uh, uh, not only professionally speaking, which, We'll talk more about, but I, as John mentioned, I, I appreciate that added insight from uh, your time as a practitioner in in public policy and government, and uh, you know, really being a participatory citizen, which is uh, some of what a lot of what your expertise is in, uh, but also your your biographical background. Uh, we we like that on this show. Uh, we're kind of nerds about it sometimes, so I appreciate that background. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about your book and. Uh, uh, a lot of this, I th- imagine you have, it's kind of domestically minded, but I know John will have some questions later for you um, about the international space. The title is The Good Citizen, The Markers of Privilege in America. And I know the uh, the, the word privilege is, uh, is, uh, is a flashpoint for a lot of my conservative friends, um, but uh, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of talk about your book and uh, what how do you think about... Um, uh, terms like citizen and, and privilege and non-citizen, uh, because I, I think it's pretty interesting, and uh, we have a lot a lot to learn on those subjects. Yeah. So I actually came came to the book because I was thinking about how how uh, the the Jews in Germany how they went from being good citizens being uh, and I, I'm going to step back. So for a sure. long time, the the, um, the Jewish people were were pretty insular. They kept to themselves. They uh, were not considered to be citizens of any state in uh, in Europe mm. until uh, basically the French Declaration of the Rights of, Ma- of Man and Citizen in about 1789, which basically says that anybody living within the, the state of, or the Republic of France are now French citizens. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't matter what their religion is. They're, yeah. they're, they're French citizens. And that was like the first time that uh, the Jewish people were sort of incorporated as citizens into any, any state. That's kind of an interesting background. But so uh, people living in, in uh, Germany, um, and I'll tell you a story about uh, a friend of ours past. She, when she, she uh, was born in Berlin, uh, and her father was uh, working with bankers and, and engineers as part of the uh, civic life of, of Berlin as uh, Hitler was coming into, into power. And one night he comes home and he says to his wife, pack a suitcase for the girls and for yourself and for me and pick one of everything that you want 
from our house. And two days later, they were on their way to Amsterdam, and then they ended up uh, uh, down in the Caribbean here for a while before they moved up, up to New York. But within the next week, all of his friends were rounded up in, uh, in Berlin. Oh. And that story sort of always stuck with me. And um, that, that um, her father had such insight that this was happening. So it sort of stuck with me for a long time. And then I was trying to figure out, you know, how did these exemplary citizens, these fall out of being citizens, fall, fell out of being even considered human, right? And so I started to do research and one of the first laws in uh, Hitler's Germany mm-hmm. in the, in about 1933, don't bank on that uh, date, sorry. Um, was a, a anti-kosher butchering law, oh. Oh. Yeah. and who and but it was couched as an animal rights law. Wow! Because we don't want to kill our animals and make them suffer this way. Yeah. So, but who did this this law affect? It only affected those the butchers and the rabbis and the and the families that were keeping kosher. Yeah. So there was not a, a there wasn't an outcry. Yeah. for other people. And while the rabbis and the butchers tried to try to work around it, um, there was no workaround. They started to import their their meats. Um, and then there was a law against uh, importing the meat. And once the, the German uh, officials realized that there was going to be no outcry yeah. about this, they could then start to implement other laws that slowly uh, pushed uh, the Jewish people out of being German citizens. They lost their citizenship mm-hmm. and out of being considered humans. Yeah, when we're dealing with that with the anti-halal movement in Australia and China, and I think China is one of the biggest uh, perpetrators, obviously, of 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 um, anti-religious. Uh, uh, or being anti-religious period, um, particularly with the Uyghur Muslims, but and and there's a movement in this country uh, when it comes to anti-halal. Yeah, but there's also there are still uh, countries within uh, Europe that do not allow for kosher halal uh, butchering. Right, correct. Yeah, and, right. and there, some know, of the Norse as countries are as, implementing. As, uh, last year, one of the provinces, I think, in Belgium, passed a law. That was anti-kosher, yeah. anti-halal uh, butchering, and again, couched as an animal rights law. I think that's that's an important piece of history, uh, particularly as people who study study policy and how laws are made. Uh, something like an animal rights bill uh, can seem pretty innocuous, uh, but it has mm-hmm. the pretty pretty swift effect of number one, uh, affecting the economic status and, and access of a of a minority community. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, obviously, uh, cutting into people's culture uh, in a way that's r- really unfair and ultimately m- marginalizes uh, an entire people group. Um, and uh, like you said, uh, w- once the German authorities figured out that nobody was going to react 
and push back in a significant way to small stuff, they could then move on to, to bigger ways to marginalize a people group. It's pretty, pretty tragic, uh, but that's a, that's a long path um, uh, to get there. And it just starts with something small like that. And so, so my, my book actually started, I started to look at, could, could that happen or does it happen? Not mm-hmm. could it, does it happen here in the United States? And what I found is that for the most part, most of us go around thinking that a lot of, a lot of laws don't really affect them. A lot of policies don't affect them, uh-huh. but a lot of these end up marginalizing or, or putting people into a second-class citizenship from which they might not be able to escape. Yeah. And so part of it is uh, we have these myths, you know, that if you work hard, you'll get ahead. How, and so how many minimum wage jobs do you need in order to uh, have to be able to afford childcare? How many minimum wage jobs do you need to uh, to move and afford a, a nice house? What are the what keeps you? You know what what property rights and property rights for the for Americans seem to be um, to dominate over human rights. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so walk, walk walk us through that a little bit. I, I, okay, so, so so for so for instance, um, we have public housing. Okay. If you if you need public housing, it means that you are not making enough money. You don't have enough money to afford housing, and therefore, uh, in public housing, you have you pay twenty five percent of your um, the money that you earn or you you receive towards the housing. Well, we actually have policies in place that say that if you are living in public housing. Uh, you can't. You have lost your First Amendment rights to uh, to assembly. You can't have someone come visit you who has a criminal record. Huh. So, for instance, if if I was living in public housing and my grandson had a criminal record because you know he you know I don't know he vandalized something yeah. and he came to visit me, I could get evicted. Wow. Interesting. Okay. All right. But it doesn't. So, but for most of us, that doesn't affect affect you. If you're living in rental property in a lot of uh, uh, municipalities right now, if the police are called to your home, uh, your landlord could evict you. Hmm. So that that affects uh, uh, domestic uh, violence victims. Interesting. I uh, see. It affect. It might affect. Uh, right now, we're having a rash of of uh, people who are calling the police because uh, people of color are barbecuing in their backyard, right. or painting, or hanging a sign on their right. their, their front wall. Right. Right. Yeah. We th- I think so about that. Imagine getting evicted, you know, from your home because the police have been called to your, to the property where you're living. Yeah. It has nothing to do with a, a conviction or active uh act of crime. It has it has to do with the fact that uh police authorities were called to look at something. Right. Yeah, to to and again we expect the 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 police I always ask my students, you know, if you call the police, do you expect them to come? Right. Yeah. Right? And then how do you expect them to act? 
Well, and just the just the sheer this is a rabbit trail maybe for another time, but uh, just the the sheer difference about the way we think uh, Americans think um, of various backgrounds about the police and what we expect, like you said, what we expect them to do when they show up. Uh, you know, often the precipitating uh, particip- the precipitating event of what ends up being a violent or even a, a deathly experience with um, police brutality mm-hmm. it starts with a phone call. Uh, yeah. of a of a quote unquote concerned citizen um, that uh, that is you know apparently fearful of something that probably ought not be fearful and uh, so there's there's a lot of more power in that phone call than we often think about um, mm-hmm. but your your yeah. your your, your um, insights into some into some of this are interesting because like you said a lot of these um, a lot of these policies are created with a mind I think uh, to look at uh, at crime and uh, crime, you know, areas where crime is higher and there's an effort to try to mitigate uh, criminal activity. Um, but a lot of those attempts, even if they're not inherently or intentionally, um, you know, discriminatory, they end up being discriminatory in practice. Is, is, is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, it's probably because how we have cast certain groups of people that they are either hypersexual or they're hypercriminal, even though they might not be. Mm. And what happens when we, when, we, when we do that? That if we think of uh, all uh, black men as being uh, criminal, then we, we react to them even if they're not. So many years ago when I was living in the center of Poughkeepsie, I had a red Doberman uh, named Ruby. And we would walk on uh, uh, the same route in the morning to get pick up my New York Times, because even if I lived in Poughkeepsie, I had had my New York Times. <laughs> um, and um, there were three high school football players walking towards us down the road. These three good-sized, you know, young, young black men. And they looked at my dog and they went I, I literally they went oh my god a doberman and they crossed the street and i cracked up and I, I said you guys let's talk about stereotypes <laughs> and we ended up every morning they would buy uh ruby a twinkie ruby loved sweets uh, <laughs> and we we would have these discussions yeah yeah, so we all have have stereotypes. So in your book, we're talking about the sort of the myth of America. The biggest thing that there's nine chapters here, uh, where it goes is the introduction, citizen and polit- citizen and the political theory, myth of America. Four is patriotism. Um, uh, property is, uh, is five and six is political participation, productive citizenship, citizen, and then reproducing citizens. I dialed in on patriotism. That was the one I, I jumped on uh, because in this day and age and what we're doing now uh, and what we're dealing with now, patriotism, personal preferences, people start pushing personal preferences as patriotism. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of get into you Why? Mean whether or not I wear a mask or not? Yeah, I was at the Rite Aid yesterday, last uh, last night, and I was getting soap, and 
this couple walked in with a baby without any face mask and I had a mask on and you know, they looked right at me. And I, I was like, they were they're ready. They, they were, and they were ready to kind of say something if I said something, you know, and I'm kind of, I always say I'm a victim of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. So I'm all about freedom. Like, whatever you want to do, I don't really care. Except so, I'm, how about uh, the harm principle? Do unto others or the, you know, golden rule? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like, okay, you, when you're in public space, so I can, let me start. My feelings, feelings are if you're in a public space and you're not running or mountain biking or whatever it is, and it's not the woods, you, you got to have the mask on to protect other people and yourself. It, it's then I go one step further and say it's advised and some places is required. Um, we're now we're talking about a family of three with one that's someone that's in a stroller and they're, you know, we're, we're, I, I'm maybe personifying a little bit, a little bit much on them. They, they looked at me and they, and, and I, the, the lady was they just are she, humans. You can personify humans. Yeah. So she was, she was she, the mouth was about to move because I looked at her and I just said, and I, and I, I just put my hands up in the air and went right back to buying the thing. Cause I was about to walk out, but I felt, you know, I was listening to the radio station where uh, they were talking on the, on the news about how everybody keeps trying to correct people to do this, to do that. And they have every morning they air somebody who's freaking out about the face mask. So the, the, that morning there was someone on who uh, someone goes, can you know, you're not wearing a mask. Can you wear a mask? And the guy was screaming, goes, I feel threatened. You're threatening me. But, and they were laughing about it because they do this little skit every morning to get listeners. Uh, but when we're talking about being threatened and we're not talking about people that are being you know, put into a get out or being sent to concentration camps or the perspective of what freedom is, is, is skew. And when it comes to patriotism, it's become not wearing them. If you're not, don't wear a mask, you're a patriot. Uh, if you stand uh, in the Capitol building with your gun, you're a patriot, uh, regardless of the legality of it. Um, but when other people do it, it's a threat uh, mm-hmm. or people are, or when people are doing it without or protesting without weapons, it's a threat. Um, so I, I think, look, you know, look at what happened in Ferguson. People showed up for a, a uh, vigil with candles, lit candles, and they were met by uh, uh, the military and the police with uh, armored vehicles. Yeah. Well, I, I've never, I mean, I, I, I've never seen a, one of the critical points of my interaction with this administration is I've never seen a president use troops to remove citizens to take a walk. I just never seen that before. My 20 well, years of government I, relations. Okay, so I'm, I'm of a different era. Penn yeah. State. Yeah. When I was, uh, uh. In high school, high school, college, high school, college, high school, one of those two. Yeah. So but I'm sure Matthew's got a lot. What Matthew, you got, you got to get in on this. Cause this is your, this is our, our, um, our world or the waters that we swim in. So what's your, what's your take on, on some of this, the, the, the conversation that we've been having here? Yeah. Well, I mean the, the, the confrontation of peaceful protests by, uh, armed, you know, armed forces, um, uh, is pretty remarkable. Um, 
especially in contrast to what you mentioned in our generation, in our generation, especially when you mentioned we've witnessed the protests um, by frankly white, white people carrying uh, weapons into um, government buildings. And yet that's not met uh, with force as much as a lot of the peaceful protest stuff uh, is. And that's troubling. Uh, It was particularly troubling when the president did it um, off over at Lafayette square yeah, Memorial uh, pretty, Day. Yeah, oh. right. Um, pretty, pretty stunning um, for for what ended up being um, a lot of visuals, a lot of pictures and, and photo photo ops with not much substance of of anything. Even once he got to St. John's, um, but I, I do think it's interesting, and I, I'd be interested to hear a little more about uh, Dr. Jim's chapter on patriotism. Um, and how she thinks about uh, patriotism, and, and particularly in light of uh, uh, citizenship. I also want you to unpack is maybe in reverse order, obviously, <laughs> from your book. Yeah. But uh, how do you, how do you think about uh, terms like patriotism and then certainly citizen? Yeah. So actually, back when our um, constitution was being written, actually it was the Articles of Confederation, which were supposed to be rewritten to make them work, and we sort of forget that the first type of government that we had for 10 years uh, was a failed government. Right. You know, it took us a while to, to get it sort of right. Right. And we're still working on it. Yeah, sure. Right. So that when we, like after the Arab spring, when we said, Oh, look what happened in Egypt, you know, or we pooed what what was happening in other places. We, we are so unself reflective as a, as an American people. Yeah. I, also, I always say to um, my students, you know, when, you know, have, what did they do today that uh, government hasn't been involved in, right? right? And you want government to be involved. And, you know, somebody will say, oh, I woke up in my, you know, I woke up this morning and I, I'll go, so where did you wake up? If you woke up in a dorm room, you, you were sleeping with the state government. Dormitory authority wants to make sure that you, you're not going to burn up. Right. You're not going to die of, of fumes from those rugs if, if, if a fire happens. And I said, if you woke up at home, you probably woke up with a pillow or two, or even your mattress that says, do not remove under, you know, a tag that says, do not remove under penalty of the law, right? And you're sleeping with the, the state, you know? And then I always have some wise young man who will say that, oh, he, you know, he went to the bathroom, and I ask him where he went to the bathroom. And if, you know, I said, you, you, you either relieved yourself and it went into our uh, city sewer system, right, to be, to be handled, or if you uh, relieved yourself outside, that's actually against public health laws. And you could, you could get a ticket for that now. So, so government is always around us and we don't, we don't really see that. Right. That's one, that's sort of an aside. So the issue with, um, patriotism and citizens, uh, back when our constitution was being rewritten in Philadelphia, there was a group of people that said, well, don't you think that anybody who had served in our military should become a citizen? Mm-hmm. And there was a group that said, no, they have to own property. They have to, mm-hmm. uh, right? They have all these categories and they actually didn't decide uh, who could be a citizen? In fact, the, the concept of citizen wasn't uh, mentioned until the Civil Rights, uh, Civil sorry, the Civil War Amendment. Right, that's the first time we actually see uh, citizen 
So it was left to the states to decide who got to be a citizen because we couldn't even let someone who fought uh, for the um, this new American nation become a citizen. So that's kind of an interesting, you know, point. Um, and so, you know, how we decide who gets to be a citizen um, up until the um, Civil War, it was left up to the different uh, states. So in New Jersey, it, they said um, you had to be able to vote. Uh, you had to be a, a citizen, a resident. You had to have X number of dollars or property, yeah. right? And about 1800, they, uh, a woman actually met those qualifications. And you want to bet those legislature, legislators rushed to... Uh, to Trenton to change that law and add gender huh. to it, right? Uh, so um, you can, there's a, um, a great book by uh, Kazar called The Right to Vote, which actually goes through all the different states and, and their uh, requirements. Interesting. Uh, who could be citizen, who could vote. You know, so that participatory piece. But then, concept of, of being a patriot. What do, a, a, a good patriot is someone who can exercise their First Amendment rights, who can dissent, who can challenge the government. Yeah. Right? But then we have a group of people even now that say that if unless you're wearing a flag pin, right? Right. You're, yeah. not, a, uh, you're not a good citizen. It's the same in 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 my in my my tribe. The idea of what is what is a Muslim and who speaks for Islam. So I mean, the answer is no one does. No one speaks for Islam. Uh, it's 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 a it's a, 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 a not a homogeneous environment, multicultural, inter intrafaith, uh, interethnic, multilingual community. And the challenge is is that there's. My struggle in, in America and globally has always been fighting against institutions that define that interpret religious texts, define what a Muslim is, and tell you what a Muslim is. And so, and if you're not, you're not you're on the outside of that, and you're not mainstream. And we had an episode just calling call it fake Muslim, where we had a, a, a Catholic who was in charge of uh, one of the largest or one of the most uh, one one of the um, uh, NGOs that that advocates for religious freedom. It came up to me, and he 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 said, "You know, I'm just so tired of fake Muslims, and I'm glad I've got a real one working for him." <laughs> and, and I and I I was confused. I go, "What what what does what what's what's a fake Muslim?" And he's like, "You know, you know the fake Muslims. You know they don't they don't pray five times a day. They don't do this. They don't do that." And it, it happens that the guy who's working for him is a Wahhabi. So. Of course, he's defining what a Muslim is in simple terms, and so that mm-hmm. so that non-Muslims can say, "Ah, I get it now." Um, and and we had that problem uh, in 2012 when when uh, the FBI training materials were that was developed by Wahhabis essentially uh, said that only Wahhabis are good Muslims and law-abiding American citizens, and the rest, if this, if they have anything about Ali, which a lot of Shia Twelvers do, the second largest sort of population. Uh, uh, anybody who was Shia was a terrorist. 
That was what they defined in their training materials. Anybody who uh, was a moderate Sunni Muslim was okay, but should be is suspect. And what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to infringement of rights, which we're talking about, uh, the justifications for listening in on mosques came from the materials that were developed by these Wahhabi NGOs. And they defined what a Muslim was to law enforcement and law enforcement just didn't know. Uh, so they followed those guidelines uh, mm-hmm. about, you know, listening on a mosque. Oh, there, you want to know what? They're Hanafi. Okay. That Hanafi's, you know, okay. They're, they're, uh, um, these guys are Maliki that they're not within the okay uh, uh, list that the, that, that the, uh, that the extremists gave us. Uh, therefore we are going to have to listen in on them. And then all Shia were hammered. I mean, and we're at a point right now in America where, we're redefining 9-11 where I was talking to uh, some national security people and they said, well, well, Iran was behind 9-11, which the, the, we have a Al Qaeda was established by a Saudi prince and all of the perpetrators in of 9-11 were, we're not going to get into conspiracies, but we're all Sunni uh, Sunnis. And yet, it's funny that that, that in the narrative is changing now that that Iran was behind 9/11, uh, which is very strange, you know. And that that's well, dealt with these that's narratives because too. a lot of Americans are ahistoric, there, and they and if it's not on the front page of the news, they forget about things. Yeah. Well, and if it's not in the news that they like, so a friend of mine, we were we were sitting with four people in Washington chatting with. Uh, members of of the government agencies and the executive branch, and uh, we were talking about where do you get your news, and mm-hmm. so uh, and my, this one guy just he goes, well, I, you know, I I get my news from the internet, and uh, I like to get it from specific places, and I go, well, what about Washington Post or what about BBC? Because I do a lot from BBC, and mm-hmm. and then then you have to aggregate. And I said, you, you know, aggregate. He goes, well, no, I, I I get my news from the internet, and where where I, I know what I know is to be, to be real news. And I go, well, what does that mean? And, and, and he goes, he goes, you know, that's, I just have my favorite websites. I go, so basically you, what you troll until you find a website that tells you what you want to hear. And that becomes real and everything else is fake. And, and that's part of the reason why we're, Matt and I do this podcast is because we, you know, we do a lot of reference notes back and forth that our disclaimers, we don't represent our respective communities, but at least we have a dialogue about what could or couldn't be real. But in this case, when I was talking about how we're the, the fight to define who a people is, who a people are, whether it's what's a patriotic American or, and what is a symbol of that, the American flag on the lapel, for example, or, what is a, a dangerous uh, individual uh, to the American government? It depends on who's defining it and what their power base is and what their ability is to influence government to perpetrate persecution. So I have a question, Dr. Myers. The um, kind of in my own evangelical uh, Protestant 
Christian traditions, uh, we have a subject matter uh, within uh, some people call it systematic theology or uh, Christian ethics. Uh, it tends to fall in a category called Christian citizenship. And okay. uh, I, there, it's basically the category of um, how a Christian ought to interact with um, with the public space and uh, government. And uh, it uh, tends to be something that looked upon as something that ought to be stewarded uh, well from um, a certain vantage point. It, tip, it tends to be uh, kind of issues oriented and what's appropriate for a Christian to do versus a church versus a pastor. Um, I have my own critique I'm developing about some of that, mostly not because I disagree with much of it, but um, I think it's too limiting and I think it's actually more heavily in influenced by Western individualism than it is um, uh, kind of scripture. Um, and there's not much role of the church to play in even forming the consciences of, of uh, Christian individuals. Um, I, th- I think there, there's some weaknesses in that, and so uh, that's part of my area of study. Um, but uh, on your subject of, related to that, um, on your subject of, of citizen, what are some of the ways in which you see uh, people losing um, the privileges of citizenship or, or trending into something what, into what you call non-citizen? What are some of your observations on, on that divide? So um, if we... If- well, we can we can actually look at what what happened in Arizona when they uh, decided that the police could stop anyone who did not look like an American citizen and ask for their papers, mm-hmm. right? So, so you know, if you know anything about American and Mexican history, um, at one point most of the uh, Western uh, United States was actually Mexican. And we and Mexico lost the uh, the war, and the the border just moved. You think all the Mexicans who had been living in in Arizona or New Mexico or Colorado or California moved? No, nope. They stayed put, right? But now in Arizona, a lot of people from Iowa have you know that's where they retire to, you know, and they and they look different from even though Iowa actually had one of the first uh, Muslim. Uh, communities in either Cedar Rapids or Cedar Falls. One of the Cedars yeah. had the first Muslim community in 1872. Um, it's a little fun fact. But um, so, uh, uh, so most of the, the native Arizonians uh, don't look, you know, blonde and blue-eyed. Right. Not- right. So they not- get get stopped, and so so we tend to other people who don't look northern european i guess anglo anglicized uh, anglo uh, looking folks and norse looking folks uh they're the latecomers to uh yeah uh, arizona and new mexico and that that part of the country right yeah but they have become the 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 primary uh definition what a good what a citizen looks like Mm, yeah yeah and i think you know i think some people might you know, would would stake some of your assertions here for something that's exclusively progressive or or, or liberal. Um, and my contention is that uh, in order to to infringe on people's rights like that, you have to breach uh, principles that certainly libertarians and and my understanding as a, as a small government conservatives would affirm um, that uh, you know government police in particular uh, shouldn't shouldn't have that kind of authority to just uh, pull you over and stop you because you because of what you look like uh, mm-hmm. I think there there ought to be some more 
harmony and agreement on on those kinds of things between the the political left and right. That's a little bit of a soapbox for me, but yeah, I mean, we 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 do a lot of racial profiling, and prior to uh, 9/11, um, most uh, uh, most people would say that they didn't believe didn't like racial profiling. After 9/11, uh, we use racial profiling not in not to look at at um, blacks as being criminal, but we looked at oh my goodness, that person looks Muslim. However, Muslim looked, and therefore, and all Muslims, you know, became uh, profiled as potential terrorists. So, if someone, so I had a colleague who wasn't uh, Muslim, uh, had had grown a beard, and in the Home Depot uh, parking lot, he was uh, he was uh, attacked by a, a fellow. Citizen is not being American huh. because he had a beer. I have a friend of mine who's a former uh, federal prosecutor who's from uh, uh, Salt Lake City who carries a beard, and he's certainly not Muslim, but he gets stopped all the time on flights, and he he's always he's always he's always late to when he comes in, flies into Washington, and and like I said, he he carries an American name, but because he has and is a Mormon, but because he. Um, he carries a beard. He gets profiled all the time. And he's very sensitive about the issue now because he's gone through that experience. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we forget that, right, uh, for all these other, these other issues. Yeah. You have a, you have a, set, a chapter in your book uh, called Political Participation. Uh, I I think that you mean more than than just the voting booth, um, which is more Definitely. more than it's more uh, than I mean by it. Uh, so uh, elaborate a little bit on what you mean by political participation, because I think uh, so. We, yeah, we we participate on a whole bunch of different levels, and if we only think of of it that we go vote at, on election day. Um, and we only Americans tend to at this point only think that the election that matters is for president when Thomas Jefferson actually said it's the government that's closest to us that actually impacts us the most. It's the, you know, our uh, local uh, board of education. Um, and we get most people don't even vote on, you know, for the board of education or for the uh, or for that uh, budget, the school budgets. Right. Uh, we see very low impact. For those uh, elections that are not uh, every four years, uh, those state le- le- elections, or you know, we see very low voter turnout. Now realize that we get our, our pants up in a knot when we when over sixty percent of the American people get out and vote in a uh, for a presidential election, right. and remember we take uh, a winner take takes all type of you know majority rule. Right. So that if if sixty percent of the population, well, let me back up. If a hundred percent of the of the American population who who could vote, being over the age of eighteen, right, and having registered to vote, right, if that was a hundred percent of the population, uh, only eighty percent of the popula- of that hundred percent of American citizens over the uh, age of eighteen are actually registered to vote. So that hundred percent becomes eighty percent. 
right, or register to vote. And of that 80%, if only 60% show up, now I'm not a mathematician, nor do I play one on TV. Um, but 60% of 80% is definitely not a majority. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pretty but for a local election, if 13% of the of the population shows up to vote for mayor or for a board of education, uh, that's considered a lot of people. Right. And those are the ones that actually decide, um, you know, your garbage pickup, your, your, your um, streets being plowed or paved, or um, if a big apartment building is going to be block your view. Uh, if you know your student, if your children are going to go to school uh, from nine to three, or they're going, and what they're going to, you know, read. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and we don't pay attention to that. Yeah, I, I have a series of questions. I, I won't, um, I won't re- go into them here. But when I have speaking engagements and the opportunity to ask in front of a, a, a larger audience, I have a handful of questions that I that I ask, starting with, uh, you know, did you vote in the previous presidential election? Um, and I get a raise of hands just to show participation. And through through about a series of four or five questions, we whittled down this thing that paints a pretty clear picture that we care a whole lot about the presidential election every four mm-hmm. years. Uh, we actually don't care a whole lot about this thing uh, we call self-governance, um, which uh, yeah. of, you don't you don't have to be a mathematician uh, to see uh, to see the numbers that are pretty stark as far as participation. Um, so beyond beyond uh, even the voting beyond booth, voting, yeah. Yeah. So beyond voting, it's actually going to public hearings. You know, if if uh, if a policy or a law is being proposed, and who can go to public hearings, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite um, things is that uh, you know, uh, there will be a public hearing when the tolls are on the on the uh, bridges that cross the Hudson River are being raised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the public hearings actually happens 30 miles away from the from the river. Wow. Another one happens at 10 o'clock in the you know might happen at 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, who's crossing the river when we could cross the river back and forth? And you know when we actually went to work or went to visit other people. Non-pandemic times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the or the um or the meeting is at night. When senior citizens might not be able to to attend, right. but so attending these public hearings is very important. Having the 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 ability to to stand up and question, to ask these questions, you know. So do you know if you don't have um, childcare, can you you know can you bring your 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 children into a public hearing? What happens if they're disruptive? Right. You know. Do you have the the, do you feel comfortable enough with your language skills to ask a question? Do you have the expertise to ask the right questions? You know, if you're citing a landfill, what are the questions that you need to, to be asking? Right? Or that that uh, that neighborhood around a landfill. Yeah. You know, you know what, what do those neighbors need to know? It's not just about citing the landfill. It's also about uh, trucking the the garbage to that landfill, yeah. right? So like you know, how how do you how do you you know give that those um, those citizens and non citizens you know that voice? So that type of participation is really important. And in my, in my with my community, it's very. Now this is ten years ago. We did a, a 
uh, participation in government programming. Uh, and uh, it was very, very difficult to, to, to convince the community, both domestically and internationally, that participate that participation in government was more than voting. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen the very famous sort of photos where everybody's got the ink on their yeah. finger and they're like, I voted. So they've all got the, the, the blue ink on their finger and they're saying, I voted, I voted. And I was trying to explain that citizenship is just at the bare minimum is knowing, knowing the law and how it applies to you. Uh, and we had a program at America's Islamic Cong- Congress called Fahim Haki which was know your rights. And it was mostly de- fo- devoted towards women and knowing the rights and how to advocate for themselves. And then we would have, we'd start, had stage two, which was civic engagement and civil society building and something that now it's flourishing. Um, and I'm not, and we played a small part as the American Islamic Congress, but most, most, most uh, organization, but people didn't know what civil society was. Uh, representing an issue or a constituency and, you know, issue-based or constituency-based engagement. Uh, uh, I mean, we were talking to, to Matthew, who is a constituency-based, it's constituency-based engagement that mm-hmm. of the issues that are important to that community. Uh, and, and it's very similar to me when I was at American Islamic Congress. And then the last part that we were trying to, so building, second part was building civil society organizations or focusing on issues and and uh, not just knowing your rights and how to advocate, but then advocating for others and building that community of concern around something uh, or, or an issue or, 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 or a group of people. And the last was you can actually get voted into office uh, or you could be a civil servant. <laughs> and, uh, and people just weren't even thinking along those lines uh, when, when we were developing these programs in Tunisia, Egypt, and Iraq and, um, and, and Afghanistan and a few other places. And uh, they would know they wanted to do something, but how they wanted how to do it was was difficult. Um, and one of the programs we tried to put together was uh, where how to how to write, develop the idea, write a proposal and a budget, and then present it so that we could microfinance it. And I think you really think those those programs are essential even to the to today right now to help catalyze issues and uh, and move individuals into to places where they were able to participate more in government and, and affect change in a positive way for citizenship. Yeah. Um, JT, you, you raised a really important concept, that community of concern. And so that's what I was talking about, about uh, the German Jews with uh, anti-kosher butchering laws. There was no community of concern outside of their own community. So many, you know, probably about 10 years ago, there was a uh, a lack of, Portageons in our uh, migrant farmers' uh, lives uh, out in the fields. And if to, they would have to stop and walk half a mile or a mile to get to a Portageon. And so a lot of the um, migrant farm workers were not walking to the um, Portageons. Um, and so use your imagination. Um, and um, <laughs> So a group of, of, of migrant uh, workers wanted to pass a law that, that would ha- say that you would ha- need, you know, farmers would need to have uh, Porter Johns within a, a short distance. And they came to me and they asked me, how, how, do you, how would you do this? And I said, well, I would actually find that community of concern um, that would be concerned about having contaminated 
uh, in groundwater or crops or whatever. Uh, it's, it's onions, right? Okay. They big onion farms out in uh, Florida, New York area. Yeah. Um, so you you know restaurant tours, you know, because a restaurant will will get shut down if if uh, E. coli is you know they serve something with E. coli, right? Hmm. So. You know, this this is how you develop that that community of concern. You find out where your allies are. Right? Yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's a it's a really important for us, for our community in international development work, but also, you know, particularly when it comes to different empowerment programs and and education programs. But here, it's been a struggle. This with in this current administration, we've had problems with the Obama administration and administrations. Uh, since I've been involved in government work, which is since Clinton, but the this administration is very difficult because we haven't been able to unify on multiple fronts uh, with engaging with this with this administration as a collective. Uh, everyone feels that they have access on their own, and but they're going in as an individual group. And then they feel like they can walk away and say, ah, they said they're going to do this and this is going to happen. And a lot of times it hasn't. Uh, and I know our community um, is very frustrated from that perspective because we have not been able to, uh, even though we have been engaged and I brought the first group of American Muslims into the White House, uh, we, there was the follow-ups on those meetings haven't happened as of yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're three and a half years into the administration. Uh, and, and the issues that we're dealing with, whether it be, uh, immigration or national security. And, and I always advocate that we can, we should be the, the advisors on this stuff. We know what, what mosques are Wahhabist. We know what the ones that are, you know, the, where, where, where activity is happening. Uh, they still are operating in the blind. Um, and, and from my community's perspective, the, the Saudis and the Israelis are driving the, the policies in the domestic policies on Muslim, American Muslims. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, and so you have foreign entities that are doing it for our government and we can't even get in uh, to, to affect policy. Uh, although, I mean, I have my chip away in my little bits and bobs, but um, Matthew, what do, what do you have to say about that? I mean, I, you've been hearing this for 10 years. So yeah, yeah, for me, yeah, yeah. So. It, it's just John on repeat cycle. You know, that's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, but, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate your insights, uh, Dr. Myers. And uh, I think it's a lot for us to, uh, to chew on. The book is Good Citizen, The Markers of Privilege in America. And uh, John, you wanted to talk a little mo more uh, with Dr. Myers about some of the international subjects and uh, work that you've been involved in. Uh, I don't want to end the program without um, uh, you having Well, a I mean, we touched about... We, we've kind of dabbled here and there. Yeah. I, so Dr. Myers, is, uh, Dr. Jam is a, um, on the board of the, uh, the Eleanor Roosevelt Center, ERVK, which is... Uh, right here in the Hudson Valley. And uh, uh, Eleanor was uh, an instrumental, if not, I don't, I don't even know if she was the author. I don't know if I could, you could say that, but she was definitely the person that is responsible for the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. I, this is, and, uh, and so we, we uh, Dr. Dr. Jam asked me in a, in a class to, to help teach a class about the UDHR in, uh, in Muslim cultures. Uh, and, and 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 speak to how it was actualized, and we discussed a number of issues. Uh, we talked about the Cairo Declaration and the Bahrain uh, Declaration, and and we talked about the Marrakesh Declaration and a series of others, and how um, I've always kind of 
advocated that the UDHR is not is very compatible with Islam. It's just the challenge is, is that it's it's diffuse. Human rights is diffuse within Islamic culture. It doesn't reside in one spot as we see it. So uh, and the best way for me to describe that is the the Afghan constitution. Uh, Article one says we're an Islamic Republic. Article two says we're going to respect religious minorities and protect them. Article seven, six or seven says we're going to be adherence to the DHR. And then it refers to traditional uh, cultures, uh, traditional uh, practices, for example, the Pashtun Mali code, which is what the Pashtun people follow. And the UDHR is located in maybe six, seven, or eight different sections of the Pashtun Mali code. But you have to know what that code is. And then you have to understand the contextualization of what that code is. Uh, and this is a shout out to my Pashtun brothers and sisters out there who, who are going to say, yeah, yeah, you're, he's right. He's right. Uh, well, hopefully. And, uh, and so the contextualization of these sort of broad concepts of like religious freedom, respecting of individual rights and so forth exist in Muslim culture, but in multiple locations and depends on of, of really in what they call informal codes. Um, so uh, maybe Dr. Myers, you chat just a little bit about how, you know, y- your experience with the UDHR and, uh, the Middle East, cause I know you do speak about it quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but it's a lot of people get tired of me talking about these such things. So it'd be very interesting to have, especially Matthew, not, uh, not me, to, never, John. No, never, never. Yes. It's, it's, you know, I, it, it, you know, he just cut that whole section out, but the sec, but maybe speak a little bit to your perspective dealing from the college level and academic level, um, about how this is, uh, spoken about in the classroom from your perspective, from your experience, and then from there, what you think, uh, how you think it's actualized and where you think it resides uh, within the Middle East, maybe just tighten it up to the Middle East because all of Islam is is uh, a pan- little bit of a Pandora's box. Well, how, how about if I start here that, uh, so Eleanor Roosevelt, the former first, first lady of the world, uh, she was asked to be uh, the chair of the Commission on Human Rights when the UN uh, was established. So um, she actually um, had a, a committee that uh, was made up of, of uh, someone from the Soviet Union, someone from Lebanon, someone from India, someone from China, uh, someone from France, the uh, United Kingdom, and I'm probably missing uh, Canada. I'm probably missing uh, a few people. But at one point, the uh, uh, representative from uh, Lebanon and the representative from China, one was a um, the Lebanese representative was a Thomas. He was a Catholic, you know, uh, Thomas of Aquinas type of school of, of thinking. And the a representative from uh, China was a Confucian. And they started arguing about how did human rights come to be? Right. And what was the origin? Of, of human rights, which actually um, Matt, you started to talk about earlier, and right, and what uh, Eleanor Roosevelt basically said was, "We're not here to discuss that that question per se." And I'm 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 quoting from from her, uh, or I'm paraphrasing, I should say. Uh, but let's agree to disagree about the origins of human rights. But let's uh, disagree that human rights exist as a universal 
and um, um, Michael Ignatieff um, actually says that this actually allowed for a pragmatic silence uh, around human rights. It just said that human rights exist as um, they just exist. And we'll move forward from there and we'll talk about you know, how do we now practice them? Let's talk about this specific. I like that. I'm going to use that on Matthew. I'm going to say, let's, why don't we get some pragmatic silence out of you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. I don't know where yeah, that came not from. the one that needs perfect. to ask for pragmatic yeah. silence. <laughs> so, so, um, but then if you actually look at, at now, you know, we have the uh, UDHR and all of its uh, different, uh, very broad uh, precepts. And then when you then we also have um, uh, different protocols and conventions like CDAR or the Convention of the Rights of the Child, right? Mm-hmm. That not all states have have uh, have stepped up for and endorsed. Like for instance, I think more Middle Eastern countries have have endorsed the rights of the child that protocol, where the United States has not. Because the United States, why we're suffering onto ourselves? Why are we going to have a this international group tell us how we should be raising our children? That was one of the arguments. Huh. Yeah, when this came about in the late eight, late eighties, early nineties. We had that the same thing about the the violence. I I can't remember the violence against women. Yeah. Uh, it was the UN component for the violence against women. We were yeah, trying to so ratify the. Uh, the uh, Convention to eliminate uh, discrimination against women. That's CDAR. That's CDAR. Uh, but we had uh, the Violence Against Women Act here that yeah. we were trying to ratify. That was based on some international standards, and and we wouldn't it wouldn't be they wouldn't pass it. Yeah. Uh, and I I, I would just remember at the when I was American Islamic Congress, we were kind of going about back and forth. I was like, oh, why? so this is a global academic epidemic. This is something that everybody has to deal with. And so and and the arguments were we don't want international influence on what we do here plus we are a bastion of freedom and all this other stuff and i go well yeah, all that stuff is true but why can't we kind of why can't we be in alignment and and be unified globally and we know and i, I know that i'm i'm making myself a little bit nervous nervous right now mentioning that because you know like the, the global conspiracy to undermine the u.s government which is just such a big thing uh, but I, I think right now we have really isolated ourselves it used to be that the the u.s passport was worth something right and now it's now we can't go anywhere with that passport yeah no pox on a romana so so in the middle east with the udhr your experience when it comes to like the 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 talking you have some very strong talking points from when we 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 when we were in class together what would if you were going to kind of give someone an elevator pitch on udhr in the middle east and and it's and and it's a maybe it's applicability or maybe it's relevance and how it's being actualized do you have uh, some insight on that so I, I would say that um, if I was walking in uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's shoes, that the whole purpose of the UDHR is to allow for every human to have dignity. And that's basically how she lived her life um, prior to the UDHR and then after. And in fact, 10 years after uh, the signing of the UDHR, she, she said, and where do human rights live? but in those small 
places close to home, mm. right? And then it goes on and then she's more exacting. And so that if we actually believe in, in human rights, if we believe that all people are humans, right? right. That's, that's their humanity then grants them human rights. Then it shouldn't matter where they're from, where they, you know, and that these human rights should be portable. They, you should be able to take them from Afghanistan to Canada to to Mexico to wherever, and then you still have have these rights. And you might you might say, well, for me, this right is more important right now. It's contextually more important, but right now, this right might not be as, you know. And but you you say, fine, they they're all there, right? But right now, the way human rights are operate is that they are government granted rights mm-hmm. and and then in certain documents say that they're that the imposition of certain documents there's not a lot of thought put into the contextualization or, or individuals or organizations or countries or peoples maybe already be practicing this so let's try to unpack that um mm-hmm. appropriately that's always my 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 game uh but uh I think we um, we'll probably hit our hit our, our mark time wise, but I wanted to say, you know, Dr. Joanne Myers, one stop shop for political science, citizenship, the UDHR, uh, dignity of the human person, and and uh, and a whole lot more. Um, and a dear friend and colleague, uh, and peer, and and I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today. Well, thank you very much, you and Matt. Likewise, Dr. Myers, this has been a real, a real joy uh, and a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Uh, all the links and relevant show notes will be at crossingphase.com for listeners who want to learn more. Uh, again, Dr. Myers, thank you for your time and insights. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll talk soon. She and I share... Uh, a common bond in many ways, but one of the most common bonds that we, uh, the strongest bonds that we share is our, our love of, of, a, of a gentleman by the name of, uh, of Jerry White, who uh, was my father's professor and then my professor, uh, was a professor in, in history, uh, knew the, the queens and their dogs and their, you know, what they liked to garden and what kind of herbs they liked in their, in their special sauce. Um, the gentleman was uh, uh, a, a poet and a historian and a lover of football uh, and strange ties. Uh, but I was in awe by him when, as a student, and uh, he taught me about everything I know about history and putting people in situations into context. And then as I graduated, he became a uh, uh, a friend and colleague and I would show up at at his uh, doorstep on a Friday night and we would uh, spend uh, almost all nights into the next day talking history. Um, we never saw eye to eye on just about anything. <laughs> um, we had very different views about the French Revolution and, and uh, Russian history. Uh, but I do know that, uh, that Dr. Myers was a very good friend and colleague, family, I think. Um, so we uh, share that bond. Um, and Jerry, I'm sure would have loved to be watching this. He also was an excellent cook, you know, so I did not talk football with him. Um, but I, we shared recipes left and right and books. So this is a tribute and dedicated episode to 
the late Jerry White, uh, Professor Jerry White of Marist College. And uh, having this kind of dialogue, I think would, would be most, uh, most warm about it.